0: monkeys. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash new relic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 85 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Omdi Grimm.
1: Hello from Pennsylvania. David Brady. I will not make jokes during the intro. I will not make jokes during the intro.
0: James Edward Gray. I always make jokes during the intro. Katrina Owen.
2: Hello from Oslo.
0: I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I really quickly want to announce that I'm going to be teaching a Ruby on Rails course this spring, and you can sign up at railsrampup.com. Uh, we also have a special guest, and that's Wesley, is it berry or beery? Uh,
3: berry, like the animal. Okay. Or the fruit, I guess.
0: Uh-huh. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? I don't think you've been on the show before.
3: Uh, sure, yeah. I My name's uh, Wesley Berry. Uh, I go by Genus Online and do a lot of open source stuff and work at Heroku on the API.
0: Weren't you at Engine Yard oh, before working on Fog or was that somebody else?
3: Yeah, I was there. Uh, I worked on their cloud product for about a year and then worked on Fog there for another year and a half about. Um, but I've been at Heroku just over a year now.
0: Oh, cool. So you and Matt's are co-workers, kind of.
3: Uh, In a manner of speaking, at least, yeah. (laughs)
4: Awesome. Matt's comes to Wesley for advice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Should we do a best of Parley?
0: I think that's a good idea. I got a best of Parley. Awesome.
5: My favorite thread from our Ruby Rogues Parley mailing list this week was a thread that started with the topic of method chaining and why is there a good reason to method chain apart from readability, particularly are there any performance benefits when you say dot, you know, something dot some method dot some other method dot some other method? Is, that, uh, is there a performance benefit to doing that over just uh, doing them all, se- all the calls separately? And I thought that clearly this was, you know, three separate calls, so why would that be a uh, performance benefit in any way, shape, or form? And then James busted out the disassembler, and demonstrated that Ruby does, in fact, optimize that case uh, slightly. and i was I was dumbfounded, but the the thread didn't stop there. It proceeded into a fascinating discussion of of the coming lazy uh, lazy enumerators in Ruby two point and whether that was a good idea or a bad idea. And Michael Feathers popped in and talked about Richard Stallman and assumptions about optimization that are always wrong. And, and uh, generally, uh, one of those sprawling threads that uh, that I learned a lot from so if you want to read sprawling and enlightening threads like this uh, go to the rogues B- 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 website and sign up for Ruby parley
0: great thanks I love the parley list there are so many awesome people on there great discussions all right well let's let's get in and start talking about the cloud now pun totally intended when people talk about the cloud it seems a little bit nebulous to me <laughs>
4: Uh, Nice. uh, uh.
0: So um
4: valid question. Are you calling for a definition?
0: I am, but Josh isn't here, so I feel a little remiss in doing so.
4: Um
2: I actually went and looked it up. So I went to my dictionary and I found cloud and it says a visible mass of condensed water vapor floating in the atmosphere, typically high above the ground. Um I figured that this is not exactly what we're looking for, so I went to Wikipedia um for a second shot. And in Wikipedia says, cloud computing is the use of computing resources, hardware and software that are delivered as a service over a network, typically the internet. The name comes from the use of a cloud-shaped symbol as an abstraction for the complex infrastructure it contains in system diagrams.
1: I always loved the cloud diagrams because whenever somebody draws a cloud on the whiteboard, I just automatically mentally label it as NFI, which is no frickin' idea. And you know the, the cloud is where magic comes out. You know, it's like rainbows and unicorns can fall out of there. And
0: uh, yeah, it's, it's useful. Yeah, the cloud is web scale.
4: Yeah. So. All right, so Wesley, you've got a lot of experience here. What did you do when you worked on the cloud stuff in engineering?
3: Um, I worked a lot on the lower-level stuff of it, like actually interacting with, and in that case, mostly Amazon, but also some Terramark. So tying the pieces together to actually make that into something that's a bit more usable.
4: So what kind of services does, let's just take Amazon, for example, because it's ridiculously popular, what kind of services do they offer in their cloud?
3: Amazon, as one of the sort of forefathers of this whole thing, I guess, has a pretty huge set of different offerings. So, you know, the the most commonly used ones probably would be um, EC2, which is their computing one, and S3, which is their storage service. Um, But there's a lot of periphery services to those, like uh, CloudFront, which adds a CDN layer to S3, and um, there's all kinds of additional ones around um, EC2 and the compute. Um, plus there's sort of databases of service stuff. And now with DynamoDB, which came out just pretty recently, they have a sort of NoSQL store also that you can use. So really just kind of across the board, if there's something you need, they have something that at least kind of does it.
0: So one thing that I'm so, wondering, because you, you brought up Terramark and EC2, but what about services like Linode or, you know, some of the other EPS providers? Uh, Rackspace Cloud is another one that comes to mind. Can, are those Cloud too?
3: I think so. I mean, obviously it is, you know, even within the context of the, uh, you know, our computing side of what cloud means, it's still pretty nebulous. But (laughs) yeah, most of the VPS providers have moved from being as clearly VPS-like to being something that is much more cloud-like, it seems like, you know, having realized that that seems to be the winning model. So there are many, many competing providers here, which does make everything even more nebulous because all of them are doing slightly different things. They try to differentiate frequently on features despite sort of trying to sell a commodity.
0: Um, right. So you kind of uh, talked about, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to hijack the conversation, but I'm a little curious. Um, you're, you're talking about kind of a spectrum between sort of the VPS provider and the cloud like is something you said. So what what's the difference between the two?
1: Yeah, good um, Wouldn't it be elasticity? That's, Part of it, certainly.
3: With a lot of the VPSs, you'd kind of end up signing up for a plan that gave you a certain amount of capacity on a monthly basis, and that was kind of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And now with most cloud resources, it's more, you know, you get things on a minute or hourly basis, kind of, and not so much a month at a time. Um, So to some extent, with a lot of VPS providers, that change has come in the form of billing changes more than really Infrastructure changes, most likely.
4: So so to kind of give a concrete example for that, last time I went and got a LendNote box, it was, you know, you agree to pay X number a month and they'll give you a VPS that has these characteristics, you know. So you're on the hook for at least a month, you know. Uh, Whereas, you know, with something like Amazon, you can fire up their API, enter a few things, and a server starts up for you. You start being billed based on what that server's processing and then, you know, use it for the day or whatever to do what you needed to do and then make the API call to shut the server down and you stop being billed at that point, right? Exactly, yeah. Which is pretty amazing, really. Because you can use something like S3 to store, you know, gigabytes of data and pay a tiny bill each month, you know? It's
0: cool. Yeah. As far as costs go, it seems like if you leave... A server running on EC2 versus you know just having a Linode that's up all the time. Um, EC2, last time I looked anyway, was a little more expensive. Is is that still the case? I mean, what are the trade offs between the different uh, models?
3: It it's a little bit hard to say explicitly, just because there's a lot of different like well, partly because the way that Amazon lists their um, available sizes of things, it's hard to directly compare that to other things. Um, but Partly also with reserved instances and other things, like there are ways to mitigate that cost, but I think in general it is going to tend to be a little bit more expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, So you pay for that flexibility, I guess.
0: Right, but if you're spinning up a whole bunch of servers, doing a bunch of crunching, data crunching, and then spinning them back down, then EC2 is probably the way to go. Yeah, I think so.
1: I guess it all kind of depends. It depends on everything, really. (laughs) Um, I mean... uh, the, the last shop that I worked That's- at full time had dedicated hardware and they were paying, I mean, they, they was, they had a dedicated box in a colo at, I want to say rack space and it was like 150 bucks a month. And um, that was more expensive than spending 70 bucks a month for an Amazon EC2 instance. Um, but they were locked into that box. It, it was, there was no scaling. Um, although interestingly enough, 90% of the people that I have worked with that use Amazon EC2, they walk into it just like they're still thinking about buying a big box somewhere because they will get one instance, get a static IP for it. They never scale out beyond it. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're implicitly less web scale because now they, they've only got one machine. They can't scale past that machine. And that machine is virtual instead of having access to the iron directly. Um, that, that's kind of what I meant by the, the elasticity. Was um, elastic doesn't mean you click a button and you get your your new server. It's this ability to be flux, fluctu- you know, to fluctuate in in your usability and your usage.
2: At the moment, um, Amazon gives you a micro instance for free the first year. So if you're just kind of experimenting yeah. with something, or if you just want a box where two people can SSH in and pair program over Tmux and whatever, um, mm-hmm. that's a really that's a lot cheaper for, at least for the first year than, um, going with a Linode instance, for instance. Yeah.
4: Yeah. The costs, i kind of looked into those a little bit and, uh, Wesley's right when he says it's it's just ridiculously complicated because there's like so many variables involved in, uh, the pricing of something like EC2. Um, you can reserve an instance, um, Uh, you know, which gives you a a cheaper price, but over a longer period of time. So if you know you're going to use it that long, you're great, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. If um, you can do things like do Amazon's bid pricing, basically, where you can offer at a certain price, and as long as it's under that price, you get to keep your instance, but the second it goes over that, your instance just gets shut down. So if your site can handle that, you know, or whatever, uh, that may be an option. Um, so anyways the pricing's complex but you can definitely get it close ish like you know maybe twenty dollars on the node side with around 35 on the ec2 side you know if you if you get a pretty good setup um, um but i think david really nailed it as far as like uh you know it's it's the flexibility and and obviously yeah it only matters if you take advantage of it but You know, being able to bring up another instance in that cloud and, you know, use your same AMI, your Amazon image to boot up the same environment or whatever. And then play with that image a little and see if the change you made is looking good. And then, you know, if it is, just click over to your. elastic load balancer that amazon also provides and pointed at that instance instead of the other instance or those instances instead of the other instances and then you know boom it's it's an extremely flexible environment and you can script all of this right because it's all just apis
0: so i was a systems administrator back when this kind of started to uh, take off you know with vmware and things like that and uh I remember my job was actually provisioning the servers. So I remember when I first started the job, um, we had a pack of disks (laughs) that we would take down to the data center um, and you would put the the Windows install disk or the Red Hat install disk into the server and, you know, install it. And, you know, we had a standard procedure for setting it up. And then um, Red Hat got some scripts. um, So you could basically put it in and say, I want to run these scripts um, and then on the Windows side they came out with a provisioning server that you could just put um, you could put the server that you wanted to provision basically in the same rack and then um, you would just say provision it this way. And uh, Red Hat went the same kind of the same way except theirs was uh, a little more complicated. And then eventually we wound up getting these we, we had a San and then we had these blade servers which were, you know, it's just kind of this uh, mini rack that you slide these, they call them blades, but they're just, they're servers that are kind of like large uh, cards that you slide in and out of them. And uh, we would run several uh, virtual servers on, on each blade. And uh, those were nice because then you could just provision them from your desk because you just get into the VMware software and just do it. And so it's been really interesting to see it kind of move ahead from, you know, basically no automation all the way up to clone that server and put it over there and and then it's done. And so you don't have to think about it anymore. I think one of the
1: cloud hostings that we didn't mention was RightScale, which I haven't heard anything from them, but they were, they were really big about two, three years ago. And they are the most uh, elastic thing that I've seen out there because they make it really easy to put triggers on whether or not a server is being overloaded. And... Uh, so you go in and you sign up for an account and you basically say, go ahead and give me up to a hundred servers if I need them, but just give me two for now. And it will, you, you, you set up all the puppet scripts and all the, and all the trigger scripts. And uh, we, we went out and did that at one company and we came in the next morning and there were a hundred servers running and like the CEO's freaking out. And he's like, why do we have a hundred servers running? Do you know how much money this is costing us? And, we went out and I looked at the servers, and they were all getting real, live, organic traffic. And I said, they're being used. And the CEO went, oh, wait, hang on. And pulled out his phone and called somebody downstairs, and he said, is today the day we got on Oprah? Oh. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so actually, the question was, do you know how much money this is making us?
1: I- exactly. This is the sound of us not getting slash dotted or wanged or Oprah or whatever it is, that whatever the kids are calling it these days. Yep.
4: I I may be wrong, but was RightScale not just a front end to Amazon?
1: Yeah, yeah. They their RightScripts. Yeah. scripts. Uh, they had this RightScript thing, and uh, a, a lot of like in the same way that Heroku backs onto the Amazon backplane, except that Heroku now is kind of like a real thing that backs onto the Amazon backplane. Where RightScale, and I'm I'm probably talking out the wrong side of my mouth here because it's been three years since I've even looked at them, but 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 back then it was it was transparent. I mean, you had to you had to tell Scale which EC2 instance size you wanted it to back onto. And, and so, yeah, they were just a, a set of thin scripts and monitoring utilities on top of uh, EC2 and AWS, et cetera. Isn't that more or less use. what
0: Engine Yard is too, though? They just kind of sit on top of EC2 and manage your instance for you? Yeah, all I know is
1: that when Amazon, when their backplane goes down every year for its annual crash, um, it seems like everybody else goes down with them, so...
4: Who knows? Yeah. <laughs>
2: so we've talked a lot about uh, provisioning servers, and we've talked a bit about um, storage uh, or, or using using the cloud for for storing media. What what other use cases are there for cloud services, or what other t- types or categories of cloud services are there?
3: There's a pretty broad group of different things, but in terms of what is like widely available, it's a much smaller set. So the things that like uh, numerous cloud providers seem to be re-implementing is a much smaller set than the total number of different things available. Um, and the ones that seem to be most common are obviously compute and storage, but then um, DNS management is also very common. And um, it seems like block storage related stuff is starting to become very common. Block storage being things like uh, EBS on EC2, um, if, if that's familiar to anyone. And beyond that, there's a number of database-related services and load-balancing-related services. Um, I'd say those are the most common. After that, it gets into more uh, esoteric things. So uh, Amazon, for instance, has something kind of like RightScale that they themselves run.
4: The only one I might add to that is email. Do you think that's getting kind of popular?
3: There certainly are a number of providers that do that, but mostly the cloud providers aren't doing it themselves. Um, with the exception of Amazon. Um, I, I haven't see, really it? seen Rackspace is, or OpenStack to find something for email.
1: Is SendGrid out there on Amazon? Are they doing it with that? I'm not sure. I think they existed
3: prior to uh, oh. Amazon's SMS, I think it is, or whatever. Yeah. Um,
0: so I, I have to wonder then wh- where, because it seems like some of these things you're kind of getting over towards SaaS as opposed to cloud. Or or is SaaS just cloud provided services
3: uh it's a very interesting question uh i think that SaaS, in a lot of ways is just uh cloud plus usability at least to me that's what it feels like like yeah you could you know just get some raw ec2 boxes and set up everything so that there'll be smtp servers and have your own email service but it's kind of a pain and it's you know difficult to maintain and it's not what you want to focus on
4: it seems like the clouds, it's one level below that, right? It's more like pause. it's platform as a service, really.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah the thing that, that made me wonder where the difference was was that uh, it seems like there are a lot of services, services out there that provide, like, MongoDB hosting and Redis hosting, and, you know, so basically you set up your account and then you have access to a Redis instance running somewhere out there and I am wondering if that's a cloud service or a software as a service or does it kind of live in both worlds?
3: I don't know that it even really uh, is valuable to make those distinctions to some extent, but um, I think most people tend to refer to that then as software as a service rather than you know cloud or or whatever. I don't know because mm-hmm. it's much easier to make the distinction between you know software as a service and platform as a service or infrastructure as a service, but I think you could easily make the argument that all of those AAS things are are within the cloud purview,
0: you know. Yeah, that makes sense.
2: If we go back to what Wikipedia said, um cloud computing is the use of computing resources delivered as a service. So, it could it it really does incu- encompass um, all of those things.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, if, you exactly. want, if you if you want to buy a big chunk and just sit on it, you can. If you want to buy a little chunk and scale easily, you can. Yeah, Yeah, that's kind of
4: an interesting point of this whole thing, right, that we really haven't touched on is, like, Amazon does this because in order to be Amazon, you have to have this insane infrastructure, right? So what they do is they open that infrastructure up to the outside world, you know, like, here's all the ridiculous computing power we need to run Amazon, plus some more because we have to be able to scale, you know. So why don't you rent some time on our ridiculous computing structure or why mm. don't you rent some storage space in our ridiculous, you know, storage mm. space cluster. So, yeah, it's it's yeah. about the resources that they're giving. But that's why think- everybody wins, right? Because Amazon's better at scaling those things than your little company that's just getting off the ground is, right?
0: Then I get more boxes with smiley faces on them. (laughs) I think
1: it's, I think it's interesting that the the cloud really is just arbitrary resources up in this little unicorn rainbow fairyland that this is an epiphany. That's just hitting me now because I, I drank the elasticity Kool-Aid. I was working at a podcasting company in 2006 and, um, AC two was still in beta. You could only get 10 servers and you had to be on the waiting list. And, and we, we literally called Jeff Barr, who was their technology evangelist at, uh, at Amazon and flew him out and showed him what we were doing. And he said, Oh, uh, I'll have a hundred servers available for you tomorrow morning. And, um, what we were doing is we were putting audio, we were stitching audio ads onto MP3s. So we would literally take your MP3, take you're a podcaster. So we would take like you know, like the, the intro music that we use for Ruby Rogues, if we didn't have the the intro joke laid into it, we would take the, the, the song that sounds like Kryptonite but isn't Kryptonite because it's free, it's royalty free. Um, we would take that, save that in the database, then you would record a podcast and push it to us. And we would take your intro music, and then we would stitch an audio commercial, and then we would stitch your podcast, and then we would stitch another audio commercial at the end. And we did that for every podcast in our system every single day. And so what we what we liked about the elasticity at that particular shop was that for two hours every night, we could have infinite resources available to us. We could have infinity computers and infinity queue, queue size and storage and all this stuff. And then as soon as everything was processed, we could then go, okay, let's go back to one tiny little web server and one little database, okay, and a really big... Uh, disk to store all these podcasts on but yeah I'm, I'm just realizing that I've been I've been frustrated with cloud computing for the past six years because that's the last shop I ever worked at that really did with the exception of that Oprah accident that's the last shop I worked at that really used the elasticity the way I thought it should be used but if yeah if you look at it it's just it's a service you can you can get it then cool I guess that does. You guys have polluted the definition. I, I, am allowed <laughs> to. I can, I can say that and still be angry. There we go. Preservation of anger. I, that's important.
4: I like what what you said there, though, about how you know effectively infinite storage. That's like basically right. S3, right? S3 is right. effectively an infinite hard drive. If you keep piling on data and paying Amazon more money, they'll add more hard drives before they run out. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so well, and, it and, is, it's,
1: and it's momentary. Right. That's, that's yeah. the magic, is it's momentary, is that you can get infinite resources for an hour and then walk away.
4: Right, and as Chuck was saying when he was talking about like the old hardware where, you know, we drop these servers in some kind of rack or something, the other option is you're running on some server somewhere and you want that to scale up. You give a call to those people, and if you're really lucky, they can drop some new hardware, in, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, and yep. hopefully you'll only have an hour of downtime, or so, you know, or something like that, which is yep.
0: right. Or you start throttling, or finding other ways to handle the traffic instead of just being able yep. to handle the traffic. Just put more <laughs> hardware behind it.
1: We, we, uh, Chuck and I are working a contract with a fantastic company, and we love them. We love them more than we like cooked food. Um, well, as my, well, no, more than, because we buy cooked food and we buy other things, so we do literally love them more than cooked food. <laughs> um, and I joked, they're using SQL Server, and I not a huge fan. And I, I joked about that we're doing normalization on the database. And I joked that we're, we have to normalize SQL Server because we paid so much for SQL Server that we can't afford disk space. And um, this, mo- <laughs> this and they laughed and the DBA gave me an annoyed laugh. And this morning, um, the SQL Server ran out of disk space. And um, <laughs> I, I've been I've been very careful not to mock them because... They have to buy custom special hard drives for it because I, I guess you need special Microsoft hard drives or something like that. So,
0: Yeah, SQL Server is not web scale.
1: Yeah, and I, I, we really need to keep talking about the cloud rather than me just ranting about uh, uh, SQL Server. But, well, no, actually this touches on it really well, which was C- SQL Server is big iron, and it's, it's not a cloud, it's not a, a service that you can just pick up. You have to go get it. You, you can have, just as like James said, you can have as much storage space on SQL Server as you want, but you have to pay for it, and you've got it forever afterwards, whether you need it or not. Yeah. So, Wes,
5: when you're provisioning, like, a, an EC2 instance, do you have preferred to, tools for doing that? Chef or Puppet or something like that?
3: So the majority of my experience, um, having worked on this, both at Engine Yard and Heroku, has been that uh, mostly other people dealt with that part, and I mostly just focused on the actual provisioning part. Um, okay. At Engine Yard, we did mostly use Chef to manage that. Um, so is that and,
5: is that technically a different step from provisioning? I'm not super clear on on which part provisioning is. It
3: depends yeah, so, on who you talk to. But. So for me, anyway, uh, I usually uh, would say that for me, my goals with Fog are basically just to encompass what I see as the provisioning step, which is getting, at least in the compute case, getting a box up and running. And once mm-hmm. it's running, like actually turning it into whatever configuration you want or whatever is, is a, a separate concern.
5: Okay, so you don't have any particular preferences. In that case, I have, a, I have another question unrelated to that. So the, the topic recently came up uh, on the Parley mailing list. What, uh, you know, what do I use if I'm just, if I'm starting out, uh, I want to, you know, throw my, my first app up there, my first Rails app up there somewhere um, on a server. What do I use uh, to to host it? And, you know, the answer that came back from everyone was obviously Heroku. And yeah. and that, that seems to be, you know, the for good reason, you know, the, the community default. But I'm thinking, let's say I am a, a novice Rails programmer. And I am inundated by all the different software as a service things out there. Um you can get get anything as a service these days, except possibly your actual app domain logic. Although you can probably get that as a service too, I don't know. <laughs> um like do I do I follow up on all those different, you know, for the for the email sending and for the I don't know. There are so many different different things that I could, you know, the, the logs and, and logging and everything. There's so many different things that I can sort of uh, push out to a service. When I'm when I'm getting started as as a novice Rails programmer, do I pursue all those and try to understand all those services, um, or do you think it's better to try to you know do those things, you know, with you know get a Heroku instance, but then you know do those things the sort of traditional way, and and then add in those cloud services later you know do i write my app to assume that practically everything that isn't pure app logic will be handled by by other software as a service cloud services or do i write my app originally to 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 do things the you know internally and then factor those things out later
4: that's a really good question
3: yeah i would like for me personally i would just as soon do as little on my own from scratch as i can possibly manage like I would much rather focus on what my app is. Kind of like you said, I think you wrapped it up really well by saying, you know, you can get pretty much everything but your app logic as a service. So for me, like why not just get it as a service, right?
5: So you'd um, say for a just, novice to go ahead and invest the time in understanding the different services that are out there?
3: Yeah, well, I think that the amount of time that you have to invest in like, you know, understanding what a particular software as a service version of email sending provides to you and how to use it like, the amount of investment that you need to make to get to that point is much less than, you know, figuring out how to spin up an EC2 box and set it up to be an SMTP server and so on and so forth. Okay. Um,
4: I, think, I think that's actually pretty accurate, what Wes just said. I mean, um, I don't know if you guys saw, but uh, Instagram's been doing a really good job of releasing uh, lots of details about their technical setup. Uh, and it's been written up pretty heavily and they basically claim that uh, they never could have got where they got had it not been uh, for the ability to leverage the cloud. And some of these articles, I'll link to one of my favorites in the uh, show notes, but they also have an Instagram engineering blog, uh, by the way, that's uh, pretty good and often adds new details. But if you just look through here... To push
2: back a little bit.
4: Oh, oh okay, go ahead.
2: Um, if you're a Rails novice, I think it's really useful to just do Rails sort of blindly for a little while. Just follow all the conventions, make your little mailer, don't worry about MailChimp or Mailgun, or um, don't worry about figuring out various types of cues and um, all these other services. I think it's really useful to just see what Rails actually does and learn some of the idioms and then if you find that your app has really complicated needs that are better served through another service, that's, that's a great time to start figuring out those other services. But as a novice, it's really overwhelming to try to get your head wrapped around everything all at once.
1: It's lever's law, right? I mean, everything the system does for you, the system also does to you. And so it's like... Three years ago in Rails, all we talked about was, should I roll my own authentication or should I use a plugin? And it was almost a holy war. And so, yeah, the the short answer is you should know how to do it yourself and you shouldn't have to do it yourself. But to get to that point, you have to do it yourself and you have to try pulling in a service to do it. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. It does, but I, th- I think that you don't always have to experience pain in order to to realize the value of something yeah. or to, to find a better way to do something. But I do think that with, um, in particular with Rails, there are a lot of things to understand, a lot of things to understand. And as yeah. a novice, I think it's really helpful to just go with, um, so, sort of just fo- follow the steps, not worry about the extras until you've... Just kind of see how all everything is sewn together and then expand yeah.
0: on that. One one other thing yeah. I want to throw in here, and, and it's much more along the lines of what Katrina is saying, is that, you know, with the cloud and everything else, again, if you don't have to be the expert, you know, why, why should you? Um, I, I think eventually you want to get there. But, yeah, being able to focus on just one thing, it really makes a lot of sense. So you go with Heroku, and then once Heroku is paying, Meaning that you know your your one Dino that you get for free isn't enough, or you know your 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 service isn't working the way that it should, and you know somebody else has solved the problem. Yet that's when you spend that's when you spend the time to go and solve that pain, unless you're just interested because I'm you know there is that too.
4: I think I I, I really agree with what Katrina just <clears throat> said, but I guess where I was trying to go with the Instagram thing is that the what happened is. In, uh, in Instagram's early days, they had like three engineers who were scaling up the site, and they were doing it on Amazon's cloud. And because of that, that brought them a lot of advantages. Like, sure, you first you write the app, you put it out there, you know, you do everything as vanilla as possible. But then at some point, you're going to need a load balancer, right? So you can put up, you know, three servers instead of one and bounce traffic between them. And at that point, you know, you've got you've got several ranges of options from you know, custom setting up your own server and stuff, at which point you can probably tweak it to to be, you know, the best load balancer for your setup, if you really want to get into it that much. But the the Amazon makes it where with a few pushes of a button, you can get a load balancer in front of your instances that is real reasonable, right? Maybe not the best setup you could have but definitely good, you know, and uh, and that I think that maybe eases the scaling up of these things, right, of, uh, you know, h- how do I worry about DNS now, that we're going to need to do some DNS tricks. Oh, Amazon has a service for that too. And it seemed like the engineering team at Instagram was saying it was because we were on uh, EC2 that we were able to ease into these things, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I want to change the direction just a little bit, um, and I want to ask specifically about Fog. Now, I'm not going to ask about the API or anything, except that I'm wondering, was Fog written to solve certain pain points with cloud computing, or was it written more to provide a common interface for provisioning across several different uh, cloud providers?
3: It has changed in its purpose from when I first started, I think, but... It's encompassed both of those at different times. Um, When I first got started with it, a lot of it came down to there just not being good library support yet in Ruby for certain things that were just coming out. Like, you know, sort of day zero, I wanted to be able to play with certain things and I just couldn't. Mm -hmm. Um, So, one of the very first things I implemented was actually SimpleDB for Amazon, which is a NoSQL store. And then, having done that, I, you know, wanted to have. S3 support, and I found that some of the, at the time, existing um, Ruby S3 libraries uh, were, I felt, lacking. You know, they were not really very well supported, so a lot of them hadn't been updated in six or eight months, and some of the code I felt was of questionable quality, so, you know, I wanted to have a better foundation for doing those things. And then I did EC2, and so for a while, it was actually all Amazon services that I just wanted to have better tools to use. So that was... uh, that was when I was dealing with a pain point, which was not, in my opinion, at least having good Ruby libraries to work with uh, Amazon. But then from there, you know, like I, I built enough curiosity and knowledge around uh, cloud stuff that when Rackspace started uh, many of their offerings, I was curious to see what the differences were and how they compared. Um, and so then I added them. But at that point, everything was still very raw, very close to the metal, sort of very similar to their APIs. And after working on both of them in parallel for a while, I quickly realized that, you know, it was incredibly difficult for me to keep track of all the discrepancies between the two, let alone somebody that hadn't spent all all that time with them that I had. Um, And so from that, you know, I had created a new pain point for myself. And so then I started undertaking also fixing that pain point.
0: So um, now that things have kind of evolved and matured a little bit, um, what are the pain points that people are seeing now with... uh, Putting stuff in the cloud or moving to the cloud from um, just having a server in a colo?
3: It's uh, a really good question. One of the big things I think that comes quickly to mind and I think is kind of a corollary to the scaling thing, but maybe one that people don't realize until they've worked in this space for a while is um, the idea of transience because in the cloud that's that's much more the case. Like It isn't really that you have a particular server that you will have indefinitely. It's that you have a particular amount of compute power that you will have indefinitely. But there's a lot of power in thinking that that compute power might change into a different server. Like, the actual materialization of it might be different. Because there's a lot of cases where I would argue that you're a lot better off just killing, you know, your old server that's misbehaving and spinning up a new one to replace it than necessarily taking the time to debug and somehow fix that old server. And that also, you know, if you really can do that, it, it aids in actually doing, like, big scaling quite a bit, because, you know, the servers themselves become much more interchangeable and a lot easier to work with, but there's a big mindset change to get to that that phase that is a lot different from just, oh, well, we'll do this in a way that it's more elastic.
1: Mm-hmm. I was actually going to ask you about that. Do, do you see more of a move towards fault tolerance? Um, I mean, it goes right hand-in-hand hand with the transient, right? I mean, if the, if the server just goes away, you can't lose that server's work.
3: right. Uh, I think that that the cloud stuff definitely facilitates fault tolerance, but it doesn't, in many cases, take care of it for you. mm -hmm. Um, Which is why, you know, like, uh, it's one of the reasons why I ended up moving to start working at Heroku is because a lot of the things that Heroku does actually take care of that stuff for you. Like, you know, dynos are actually very transient. Um, It's pretty transparent to end users that they're very transient most of the time, but, Mm -hmm. you know, dynos can come and go because maybe we want to do a security patch or whatever else we can just sort of, you know, transparently swap out your dyno and and not really have any impact to end users.
0: So I I guess my next question is, are there instances where you would recommend to somebody to move off the cloud and into a colo?
3: It's hard. Uh, Most of the cases that I hear that are related to that usually have regulatory reasons um, more likely than, than necessarily technical reasons. Like that, that we, makes sense. we have security, to things like that. Yeah, like we have to own the entire box. Like we have to know that nobody else can physically be on this box. But outside of that, I haven't heard too many cases that are like that. Uh, the other big one is cost, but that's a really hard argument because, like as we discussed earlier with EC2, it's so hard to have a sense of what you're actually getting for that money versus what you're getting in a colo colo place because You know, with EC2, like, there is, like, they can, you know, spin up a different server that you could put your stuff onto, whereas in a colo, it might take quite some time to do that, you know, and they'll transparently replace hard drives that fail underneath the covers for you in most cases, stuff like that, that, you know, colos just aren't going to offer. And the, the hidden implication there being that they have all of these experts around that know about this stuff that are basically working on your servers on your behalf that you aren't explicitly paying for. Right. I think
4: there can be some pretty heavy differences in scenarios like GitHub's needs, for example. You know, GitHub is really selling a kind of infrastructure, right? And, and they have very specific needs as far as, like, being able to get information from Git repositories, which implies certain things like, you know how fast they can talk to something stored on a hard disk somewhere, et cetera, right? And I I think in those scenarios, you know, they eventually moved away from the cloud to a very, you know, uh, server-oriented facility because, you know, that's one of those million-dollar cases where the fine-tuning probably is way worth it, you know?
3: Yeah, and it depends, too. Like, it may... Like I don't know everything about that situation by any means, but it may be possible that, you know, there could have been re-architecting that would have made it work okay on the cloud. And, you know, and to some extent it's a special case also because they're big enough that it's likely that any cloud they went to would bend over backwards to accommodate them, you know, or or any colo, you know, for that for that matter. But the colos are more likely to bend over backwards than the clouds. The clouds are mostly kind of like you know, well, here's what we have. You can use it however you want, but, you know, we'll add things as we add them.
0: One other thing that came to mind while we're talking about colos versus clouds is that in general, um, the colo, you're putting all of your stuff in one data center. I mean, I've worked for companies that, you know, spread their stuff out across multiple colos, but it seems like that's much easier with the cloud. So you can set up servers across um, different locations, with an Amazon's cloud, for example, you know, you can go East Coast, West Coast. They have a few others. You know, a lot of these other ones, it's like pick which data center you want to put stuff in. I mean, even Linode, when I spun up a new instance the other day, they were like, where do you want this hosted? And, you know, my one server was in Dallas, I think. And so I said, well, put this one in Atlanta. And, you know, they, they, for the most part, can talk to each other seamlessly. I mean, you might get a little more latency if it's East Coast to West Coast talking, but you know, you you can distribute more easily with the cloud, it seems, than you can in colos because you've got to um, provision space in each location if you're in a colo. Yeah.
2: It doesn't seem like a lot of people do that, though. Like, when when, uh, Amazon's data center in Ireland got hit by lightning or whatever it was, a lot of sites just went down.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
4: it's, It's true.
0: But if you have a backup system in, you know, in another location then in a lot of cases, all you have to do is change your DNS. And sometimes you can even yeah. set up systems to do that seamlessly. And uh, so it's like... you okay. think
1: that. You'd think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> hey. um, every time Amazon East goes down, half the internet disappears, damn it.
3: it yep. It's
0: true. It's very true.
4: It all
3: depends. So, I mean, it's easy to relocate your computing power, but it's very difficult to relocate data. Yeah
4: yeah that's you yep. know you've got to have those databases perfectly in sync and yeah it's it's a non-trivial problem it, it
1: I think. is yeah. uh, I worked at one shop that had everything in rackspace and everything also on right right which was a nightmare because we we kept wanting to write r s on things and that gave you no information <laughs> um, uh, but uh so we basically had rasp and risk on everything for rackspace and WriteScale. um. And the data, yeah, it came down to, to the, pro- the, the two problems we had were at the front and the back end of the chain. Um, we, at, at one point, very briefly, had MySQL replication working between two servers in Rackspace and then over the, the colo boundary into right scale and then back. Oh, it, was a, it was a master-master ring replication. And it stayed up for about a day before the databases got corrupted. So, yeah, the data became a problem. Um, but the other thing that we had was that the all of the balancing and DNS stuff was in uh, Rackspace. And uh, this was, what, 2009 was when Rackspace had their Dallas Colo blow up. One of the Transformers blew up, and it literally took out a floor of their building, like literally punched a hole in the floor that was like 20 feet across. Um, yeah, I have that happen so,
4: in my home office all the time. Well, yeah,
1: yeah. So, me too, but that's that's more of a, a, a mad scientist maker shed kind of thing. Um, but, but the problem was is that all of the stuff that we needed to switch away went down with the data and the processing power. And so, mm. e- eventually you have to put some eggs in a basket and then you have to watch that basket. It, there's there, you eventually reach a point where you cannot perfectly distribute all these eggs across multiple baskets. I, at least that's my theory. I, I I'm, boy, we brought Wes on and we're telling him a lot about his job, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to Wes now for rebuttal. Am I full of crap?
3: Um, there, there are parts of it that are much harder to deal with than other parts. And it all depends, too, because there are technologies that make some of this easier, like uh, doing the kind of distribution you're talking about with um, some NoSQL stores such as Dynamo. Well, I guess Dynamo isn't immediately available to us, but something like React can do that distribution in a much sort of more straightforward way, but actually using it on a day-to-day basis is much less straightforward. Um, like, it's not a way that we think about things. We usually think about things in a more SQL-like modality still. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think part of it is that problem of, you know, kind of like the the transience thing. Like, there's certain mindset changes that in, that we could work with our data in ways that would allow us to distribute it more. But, like, that's a big mindset change and uh, a big shift. So. Yeah.
0: All right, well, we're getting close to our time limit. Are there any other aspects of the cloud or fog that we want to go over? What's
1: the coolest part of your job, Wes?
3: So as of recently, I've become in charge of the uh, API for Heroku, which I'm working on polishing up and trying to make into a more publicly accessible, more consistent thing so that people can do awesome stuff on top of it.
1: Is Um, this the thing that, that I talk to when I type Heroku and then some stuff at the command line?
3: Exactly. Yeah. So, cool. Okay. Previously, I worked on the CLI, which was sending a lot of those commands on most people's behalf, and wow. now I'm working on the API itself to try to get it to a point where we can, you know, feasibly just say, "Hey, everybody, here are some API clients, and here's some good documentation," and like go do things with Heroku that we never even imagined. Cool. Um, and so I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, we have some work to do still there, but I think there's some amazing potential for Kind of like I said, like all these things that you know, we have all of the tooling there that you can do stuff with, but that we inside the company don't have the hours in the day, or you know, imagination or whatever to come up with. So
1: yeah, is so, there a, a a new use case that you're allowed to tell us about that's new and exciting and coming? It's a good it can question. be something that you've seen it or not. So,
3: uh, I mean, one of the I guess more obvious ones is just to do with. Uh, handling scaling automatically um, which is you know always this panacea but it's very difficult to do in a way that is uh, universal like because different people's use cases are much different like some people are IO bound some are memory bound whatever Um, so it's hard to know what uh, what thing that you need to watch and once it hits a certain point that you need to add extra capacity but with the uh, API being open the way that we hope that it will Uh, it's much more feasible that you could watch your own metrics as they came out of your app. And if you knew that a certain thing indicated that you needed to uh, add extra capacity or that you were at a point where you could remove capacity, you could just take care of it yourself, Mm
0: -hmm.
3: which I think is pretty powerful. Um, And I think there's some other things like coming down the pipeline in terms of making it easier to do seamless deployment and possibly to do a-B testing and to manage your staging and production environments and, and things like that that, you know, for the most part are technically feasible using the Heroku command line but um, aren't always the easiest. And in a lot of cases, go back to the same problem where it's difficult to come up with a universal solution that would work for everyone because everybody does those things slightly differently.
0: Yeah. Cool. That's cool. So I have to ask, um, your, your API is going to get you to the point where you're going to be like the Twitter of, of hosting? And uh, when you get that big, I mean, you guys are already making money, so I guess you're ahead of Twitter on that count. But, um, ouch! I, I have to ask: Are, are you going to start <laughs> limiting the number of users that people can have on their apps?
3: No, because of the way that things are routed and stuff. If you have, I mean, it's like most things. If you have a lot and a lot of users, like the latency that the individual users see will tend to grow. They'll end up getting queued behind each other. But if you add capacity to that, then, then the throughput can can follow. So we've had a lot of great cases where people, you know, spun up apps because they were going to have an ad in the Super Bowl or something, right? And so they like just, just added a ton of capacity. So all of it go through just fine. And then we're able to scale it way back down afterward. And the nice thing, in, in my mind, from having done a lot of this cloud stuff directly and now working with Heroku is that there's all this stuff that Heroku just takes care of that, you don't realize it's a pain in the butt unless you've had to do it yourself. But um, it's nice to not have to worry about a lot
0: of that. Yeah, makes sense. So one last question. I, I'm, I've always been curious about this, but does Heroku use their own infrastructure for their management app, you know, where you sign into Heroku and you set up new apps and all that stuff? Is, is that all running on like Heroku Dinos, just like everything else that we put on there?
3: We have a lot of stuff running on Heroku dynos, but not quite everything. Some things are much harder to do that with than others. We're moving more and more towards putting more things onto dynos. So, uh, in in you know the grand tradition of sort of dogfooding as much as possible, we try to figure out you know what are the services that we're running internally that for reasons X or Y we still can't quite put on a dyno, and then that's one of the things that is you know informs us as we figure out what the new features are that we'll roll out.
4: You know. so, I think there was a really good talk at that. Uh, was it at Aloha RubyConf maybe, where it was running Heroku on Heroku or something like that? Yeah, I think I think Noah did that. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yo, dog! I heard you liked Heroku. <laughs> yes,
4: it was at Aloha RubyConf. It was running Heroku on Heroku, and it was by Noah uh, uh, Zosky? Is that his name?
3: Yeah, yeah. So internally, we refer to it as the. Uh, self-hosting singularity and much like the other singularity it's it's something that we foresee happening at some point but we're not quite there yet
0: so that, that, that this makes me really curious what kinds of things can't you run on a dino
4: he, um, he goes into that in the talk about why parts of it are are difficult and stuff it's it's well worth a watch for that okay. reason
0: I will refer people to the video then and we can go ahead and get into the pics unless there's some other pressing thing we need to talk about
3: well, I can, I can drop just one really quickly, uh, which is basically that the only thing you can route to a dyno is HTTP traffic. So if you want to do anything that's over other protocols or not just HTTP, you can't do it on a dyno currently. So that's one of the big ones, and something that we hope to address, but uh, have not addressed publicly yet.
0: Cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Wes. Let's let's get into sure. the picks. Should we make James go first?
4: Sure. I've got a couple of easy ones this time. Um, When I moved to Mountain Lion, some of the changes in the way the OS handles uh, virtual spaces, which I cannot live without, uh, were good and bad. The good was I love the way apps get their own virtual space when you full screen them. The bad was I lost the 2D um, uh, layout of spaces, which... I'm anal enough that that actually bothers me because I would have it set up as a two-by-two grid, and then no matter which space I was in, it was only ever one move to get to the next space because I could go down or right or back, which would get me to the one at the end or whatever. So I had this kind of system, and I I really missed the 2D aspect of spaces. Anyways, if you're like that, there's an app that takes care of that for you now. It's called Total Spaces, uh, and it puts the, the... Uh, grid-like structure back in spaces. Um, And then, uh, for something fun, uh, since Christmas and uh, probably a lot of us are doing shopping and stuff, but uh, just I saw this the other day and thought it was just a great hack, and uh, it's a Tumblr about a person that Uh, built a bot that randomly goes on Amazon and, given certain limits, buys things for him. And so (laughs) he just gets these random Amazon shipments that show up with, you know, things that the bot decided to buy for him. Uh, And then, you know, he'll talk about uh, what was in that shipment and, wow, that's weird, or oh, hey, cool, I would have never known about this and read this book, and I just thought it was a super cool kind of life hack, you know, of uh, uh, kind of a neat way to get outside your bubble. So fun idea to look through and just get inspiration from.
1: Those are my. You've picks. seen you've seen the XKCD about that, haven't you, James?
4: No, I haven't.
1: Uh, I don't know if Randall Monroe really did this, but he he drew. I'll put it in the show notes. He drew an XKCD. He wrote a bot to basically he gave it 30 bucks and get, or $365 and every day it would try to find something for a buck with free shipping and and send it to him. And it <laughs> supposedly sent him an empty gas can, a ski mask, a, a shovel and like on the fourth day he turned it off because he, he said he said I turned it off before I ended up on every FBI watch
0: list ever.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and that's how Randall started his life of crime.
0: Yes. <laughs> Awesome, David. What are your picks?
1: Uh, I've just got one today. Um, uh, For somebody who doesn't have a lot of time for reading, I sure seem to be doing a lot of reading lately. And um, uh, if you followed my picks, my book picks in the past, you know that I'm really interested in books about happiness and about psychology. And I finally cracked open the Happiness Project by Gretchen Rubin, and I I can't recommend this book highly enough. It's it's fantastic. Um, It's just her documenting a year of resolutions that she made and uh, that would try to make her happy. And uh, one of the surprising things that she found early on was that uh, things that made other people specifically happy um, we're more likely to make her happy than general principles that are known to make everybody a little bit more happy. And that's why she ended up writing the book where she? she decided I'm going to tell you exactly what I did and how it worked and what didn't work for me, because my experience is that this is more likely to make you happy or to give you ideas for what will and won't work for your own happiness project. And, um, I'm about halfway through it. Um, it, it's very obvious that she comes from a legal background and that she did a ton of research into this book because uh, I'm listening to it on Audible right now, and I'm going to have to uh, buy the hard copy so that I can mark it up because she she will just dump lists of information. I don't recommend it for audiobook, unfortunately, but uh, something that you can read, read with a highlighter and stick post-its all the way through it, uh, just fantastic. Uh, the Happiness Project, Gretchen Rubin, uh, highly, highly, highly recommend it.
0: Terrific. Um, Katrina, what are your picks?
2: I've got three today. Uh, the first is sort of because we did the cloud computing thing. It's powerof60.com. It's 600 hours of Amazon compute services for free. So if you just want to play around and kind of get a, get a um, g- grasp uh, around what it might be able to do for you, um, powerof60.com. Uh, the second pick is just kind of a general... Thing that I keep going back to, and that's a thesaurus. Just have a thesaurus handy. I have a macro that takes me straight to thesaurus.com, um, ready to type in whatever the word is. And this is just really good when you're trying to find a more accurate name for a variable or a class. Um, just look up a word and kind of word surf until you have something that expresses it really accurately or precisely. My third pick is wordoid.com. So this is also for naming things, but it's when you need a poetic or expressive um, name for a project or a gem and you need something that kind of suggests a topic but doesn't actually mean anything. Um, So wordoid.com will also check the .com and .net domains to see that they're available and they'll show that straight away. So as examples, the first word that came up for me today was acceptable, which I just thought was really, really funny. (laughs) I've used it for a bunch of things. I have a project, or I'm involved in a project called Drumquake, which I just thought was the coolest word ever. Uh, I've made an app for Etsy users to do their reporting, me and a friend. Um, and we called it Metricorn, which was also came off of Wordoid. Other things, I've made a gem called Langulator, which just munges I18n files. Um, and I made norwegish which is a gem that takes english and generates reasonable looking norwegian of course with a command line uh binary <laughs> so yeah uh, wordoid.com for for fun poetic uh, expressive names that mean absolutely nothing
1: that's i just want to say reason, reasonable looking norwegian is the name of my next band
0: <laughs> <laughs> all righty uh avdi what are your picks hmm
5: what are my picks um Let's see. I recently uh, replaced my development development machine uh, for the first time in many years. I got a Lenovo X230 uh, laptop and I'm very, very happy with it. It's, it's a pretty awesome machine. Um, if you're looking for if you're looking for a develop, uh, a, a very portable, not quite ultra book but very portable machine that has very high specs for its size and uh, runs Linux really well, the, uh, the x230 is pretty great. And uh, for a, a less technical pick, I'll just pick one of my family's, our family's favorite YouTube channels, which is Epic Rap Battles of History. We subject pretty yes! much every every guest we have to this this, and, and they always love it. And uh, there are actually two two channels. There was there was the uh, the Nice Peter channel, which they started out on, and then and then they spun off an actual channel for the for the rap battles, which is called which is called ERB, and we'll, I'll put. Links to both of those in the show notes, but uh, some some particular ones to look up the uh, the first the first Adolf Hitler versus uh, Darth Vader uh, is pretty epic. The uh, Chuck Norris versus Abraham Lincoln is great as <laughs> well, as is uh, Master Chief versus uh, Leonidas.
1: It's nerdy, but I really loved the Keens versus Milton. That is <laughs> because... not that
5: that is not theirs, by the way
1: that's not theirs okay no no right. totally different people.
5: It's, it's also very that educational. Was made by, yeah the, the Keynes versus Milton was made by some some economists oh,
1: okay okay
5: but uh, yeah the the, the the epic rap battles they're actually they' the, the the tunes are great and uh, and and it's surprising when you look through them just how many referent uh, relatively obscure references they they managed to cram into the uh, into mm-hmm. the raps.
3: that's funny
0: all right Wes what are your picks
3: uh, sure I've got a couple. Uh, the first I just say um, is actually where I live, Iowa City, which I feel like I always have to defend to some extent because people are always like, you live in Iowa, why would you do that? But it's a, it's a great town. We have a small but uh, pretty great tech scene. We have a machine learning computer vision meetup. We have Ruby and JavaScript meetups, like just a lot of stuff going on, a lot of great culture and other things. Um, so definitely a fan. The other one which I've just been playing with recently is called uh, iFleet, and it's uh, tools for using your phone to measure heart rate variability, and so the idea with heart rate variability is uh, as you breathe in, your heart rate increases slightly, and as you breathe out, it decreases slightly, and that's caused by the interaction between your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems. And depending on how stressed out you are, basically, the sympathetic nervous system can kind of take over, which will mean that it will accelerate more quickly than it will decelerate. And so HRV is a way of measuring basically which of those is in prominence, um, which is an interesting measurement of basically how stressed out and tired you are. Um, So as someone that's like super interested in quantified self stuff, uh, I found it really interesting to see like how rested and stressed am I today. And so in particular, they talk about using it for elite athletes, like so that they can figure out when they're on their way to overtraining so they can avoid overtraining. But I am not an elite athlete. And so far, I've just been using it to see like, you know, am I getting enough sleep? Uh, You know, did I am I pushing myself too hard? Like, you know, how am I doing today? Do I need to rest? And it's been super interesting for the week that I've had it.
0: So, Huh. That that sounds amazing. Uh, Unfortunately, I know what it's going to tell me. (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> <laughs> there's some great studies on that kind of stuff Wes. like, um, uh, showing how heart rate variability dramatically affects things like people's willpower. So, you know, when it's out of whack, you, uh, you, you have much less willpower to resist temptations and stuff. You do worse on your diet or things like that. It's pretty
3: cool stuff. Yeah. It's, it's pretty fascinating. There's a bunch of really interesting studies and stuff around it also. And so I was pretty pumped to see that for, an investment of maybe about a hundred bucks. I could have an app on my phone that I could put on a heart belt in the morning and actually get my HRV for the day so that I can actually see how it's tracking over time and see whether or not it's in a good range or if I'm moving into a bad range and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's awesome.
0: I wonder how it's, uh, it compares to like the Fitbit or whatever. Anyway. um, So I'm going to give a couple of picks. Um, This last Friday was my birthday and my wife bought me tickets to go see the Hobbit and the movie was awesome. Um, So I'm going to pick the movie, but more than the movie, I'm going to pick the soundtrack. Um, The soundtrack that you can get at the store is not the same as the soundtrack you can get on iTunes. You can get a special edition that has some more tracks on it from the movie, and that's the one that I recommend that you go get. So I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can go and buy it on iTunes, and um, yeah, go see the movie. It It was really, really good. And uh, that's all I have for this week. So just to wrap up, go sign up for Parlay. You can do that at com. And uh, thanks for coming, Wes. It was awesome. Yeah, thank you.
4: Hurry up and end this episode. It's interfering with my reading of com. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I've bought seven domain names already.